Please bow your heads with me this evening for a word of prayer before we open God's Word. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we come to Thee begging once again the righteousness and merit and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to have access to Thy throne and to understand the things that are freely given to us in this world and to understand the instruction that we have in Your Word. O Lord, we thank Thee for the King James Version. We thank Thee that there's power in the word of a king. And we thank Thee that Thou didst fulfill Thy promise and preserve to us in our own language Thy infallible, inspired words, that we might know the things that are freely given to us, that we might know of Thee, that we might know and understand God, that You exercise judgment, righteousness, and loving kindness in the earth. And Lord, in context of what we shall look at this evening, that you have instructed us in how to live here in something as mundane, in something as small and insignificant as our financial matters. Give us wisdom, O Lord, as we open thy word. Save us from foolishness. Save us from misdividing the word of God. And grant that we might pay careful attention for the short time we have together that we might be instructed in that holiness to which you've called us, and that is to study, to learn, to be quiet, to do our own business, to work with our own hands, that we may provide things honest toward them that are without, and that we may have lack of nothing. Save us, O Lord, now from error. We'll give all the glory to Jesus Christ, in whose name we are assembled, and thank thee. Amen. This evening I want to continue what we began this morning. And that is a study of Bible economics, or what the Bible has to say about economic affairs, in particular, personal, family, or home economics. What does God want you to do with your money, and how should you take care of it? Now, this morning we spent some time reviewing what the subject of Bible economics would include, the importance of that subject, and all the emphasis given to it in Scripture, and it certainly is one that is emphasized. And I want to review just briefly what we did cover this morning to, get, to remind you of the basis we need for going further. Bible economics is the study of God's ordained methods for your financial success. God wants, expects, and has commanded you to follow certain procedures to realize financial success. It's a shame that anti-Christian cults like the Mormons put so many Christians to shame in financial affairs. The average Christian's a sorry excuse for knowing how to use his money. That's a shame. We want to correct that as far as this congregation is concerned. An important point that I made this morning that I hope you will remember as a basis for everything we look at is this. Regardless of what the rich may say, a poor man who understands what his Bible teaches knows more than the rich. Remember what Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 11 said to us. Proverbs 28:11. The rich man is wise in his own conceit, but the poor man that hath understanding searcheth him out. That is important to remember. As we go through the rules for financial success that the Bible lays down, and they're plain, you don't have to work hard to dream them up. They're all there. As we go through them, some of them will appear too simple, some of them will appear too mundane, too boring. So you'll want to reject them because you've read something written by a rich man that was more appealing to the flesh. But the Bible says that a poor man that has understanding, and a man that has understanding is a man that believes this book right here, that the word of the Lord is right. And I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Therefore, I hate every false way. Is that your attitude? that whatever this book says about financial matters, you will believe that it is right and you will put it into practice and you'll hate any way that contradicts it even though that way that contradicts it may be supported by many who are rich in this world. It's hard, but it's important to have that down before we get going. I'm going to say some things that the rich of this world would deny. Now, who are you going to believe? The rich of this world who have made their millions? or your pastor who is simply laying out to you the Word of God. You have a choice. 
If you're wise, you'll believe your pastor. If you're wise in your own conceits, you'll believe the rich. That's the difference. The Lord has said, but if a man will be ignorant, let him be ignorant. If you want to reject the counsel of his word, go ahead. It will be to your own ignorance. I showed you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that true sanctification, doing the will of God, is learning, is studying to be quiet, doing your own business, working with your own hands, that you may provide things honest toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. I'm going to repeat that over and over again. That's the third time I've mentioned it to you. True sanctification is found in abstaining from fornication, 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, not defrauding your brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, and loving one another, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. And then what I'm dealing with tonight, studying to do your own business wisely, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. That is sanctification. That is what God has commanded us to do. Now, Jesus said that those that are in this world, the children of this world, are wiser in their generation than children of light. When it comes to money matters, we can learn things from the world, and Jesus Christ expected us to learn things from the world. He said that in Luke 16 and verse 8. The children of this world are wiser in their generation than children of light. But in verse 9, he said, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. If you haven't been faithful in the mammon of unrighteousness, God isn't going to commit to your trust the true riches. If you haven't shown faithfulness in the things that are least, why do you expect the things that are greater? If you haven't been faithful in things that are another man's, why should you expect your own things? That is an important lesson. Brother Newell experienced it a week ago, didn't you, Brother Newell? I remember when he went to Atlanta, and I'm so thankful he had the opportunity to go to Atlanta and rub elbows with some of the more affluent in our society. You need to do that. As I emphasized this morning, it's not just showing our children and ourselves, those that are poorer than us, so as to be thankful for what we have. We need to look at those who are better off than ourselves to regret that we've been such failures where that is due. That's a good experience. I told you my own experience and what a shock it was to my system to find out that people live better than they did in the blue-collar neighborhood I grew up in Michigan. It was great to get out there and see the children of this world and their wisdom. And Jesus said to make friends with that wisdom and to learn how to use this world. Before I get through with this series of sermons on financial matters, I will be setting forth the moderate position that a Christian must maintain between fatalism and lethargy, not doing anything, total lack of ambition, and too much ambition. I'll be covering that. Some of you may be thinking at this stage of the game, well, all you're doing is setting forth that we ought to love money and love success and measure everything by financial success in this world. Oh, I'll pull the reins in before we get through. But the reason I'm starting out this way is because every church has its own personality. And guess what I'm more concerned about with this congregation? Do you think I'm more concerned with overambition or less ambition? A pastor better be, better be able to read his congregation. This church is not in danger of running away with working too hard, making too much money, and falling in love with uh, the mammon of unrighteousness. This church needs to make some more concerted effort to manage the money they are making and to strive to make some more to fulfill their godly requirements. I'll get to the rest, but I will emphasize success more than I will controlling your love of filthy lucre because of the personality and basis and background of the people that make up this church. Although the Bible is going to emphasize, and we shall lay it down very clearly, that it is your diligence, your faithfulness, your intelligence your skillfulness in securing financial wealth and being able to provide for your financial duties the way God expects, although that's where the emphasis of Scripture is going to be, as I showed you this morning, Solomon said that when he returned, he realized that time and chance were also involved. God is going to give you opportunities. He may not give someone else. 
And you need to keep that in mind. Remember, I'm trying to take a balanced approach to everything we look at. In general, the diligent hand shall be made fat. But the Lord does use time and chance and opportunity. And opportunities usually flow every man's way. The problem is, those who aren't diligent miss out on the opportunity. I'm going to be getting to the fact of how important savings is. I won't, be, I won't even be able to get to it this evening. But let me just point this out. Every man has in his, in his lifetime several opportunities to make good money. Most of those opportunities require either sufficient training or sufficient capital. If you haven't applied yourself to acquire the training and you haven't disciplined yourself to acquire the savings, guess what? Time and chance passes you by. Do you see how diligence and faithfulness work with time and chance? God brings time and chance, especially in this country. America is the land of opportunity like there has never been another land. And it's your diligence that will prepare you to take advantage of the things God has given you here in this country. Let's not forget, though, that promotion comes from the Lord. The next time you get promoted and want to brag about it, read Psalm 75, verses 4 through 7, where promotion comes from the Lord. Don't be stiff-necked and lift up your horn and tell us about your promotion unless you first give God the credit, because that's where Scripture leaves it. Open your Bibles now to Isaiah 28. Let's get going for this evening. Isaiah chapter 28, we are in the middle of considering the basis of Bible economics or the principles of God's dominion over this world. God has created this world and put man in it to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to, to take advantage of it, to exploit it for his own enjoyment. God hath given us richly all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6 and 17. Now, one of the ways God does that is He gives men instinct and intelligence to know how to make use of this world's resources. I mean, if you want to talk about economic theory and what you can learn from the Bible, look at this passage. Isaiah 28, beginning at verse 23. God sets it apart, too, as deserving your attention. Notice how He begins. Give ye ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Now, this is good. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Yes. There are farmers that get up in the morning and they plow all day long. Now, they used to have to take the uh, horses into the barn when it was dark. Now you can buy yourself a $75,000 tractor with halogen headlamps and you can just keep right on sowing into the night. Like Brother Tim Boffey does in Edmonton. 18 hours a day sowing. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Yes, he does. That's a rhetorical question, assuming your positive answer. Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? Yes, he does. When he hath made plain the face thereof, that is, he's flattened it all out to a plain, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? Yes, he does. He sows a multitude of different kinds of grain. Verse 26, For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. When you see a man breaking up the clods of ground and spreading out the ground nice and smooth and you go by a field and you see the big heap of stones that a farmer's pulled out of the field, where did that man get the understanding, the discretion to go out and take the boulders out of that field and to lay it flat and to sow? He got that from God. God instilled that within him to know to do that. Let's keep reading. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin. But the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. How do you, what do you do with wheat? once you've harvested it from the field. You have to thresh it. Then you put it in a winnow, toss it up in the air, and the wind blows away the chaff and leaves the wheat. Now, if you had a crop of corn, what would you do? Would you do the same thing? Would you take a hundred ears of corn and toss them in the air, hoping the cobs would blow away and the corn would fall down? 
You're laughing at me. God's asking you that question. What makes the difference? What gives men the intelligence to know that you thresh wheat, but you grind corn? You've got to grind it off the cobs. Notice, notice the sarcasm, if you will, in verse 28. Bread corn is bruised. And that's You've got to bruise the cob to get the corn off the cob because he will not ever be threshing it. Now, if you try to thresh corn like you thresh wheat, you're going to be doing it forever, God said, because he will not be ever threshing it. The point I want to make is this in verse 29. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. When we talk about Bible economics, the ability to know how to take advantage of natural resources and to make them work to satisfy human needs is a gift from God. Whole nations, whole continents, and whole races, and whole groups of people have been ignorant of basic means of production. And it is essential for us to understand that in God's dominion and in God's sovereignty, He has chosen to reveal those means of production to certain groups of people and not to others. I use the example of the American Indian because it is such a good example. When I was a child, I worshipped the American Indian. I mean, how many times have I read books about Sitting Bull and wished that I could have been an American Indian? But when you grow older, when I was a child, I thought as a child, when I became a man, I understood that I had been thinking foolishly. The American Indian never invented the wheel. I've told you that before. Why didn't the American Indian invent the wheel? God didn't give him the ability or open his eyes to think about this, one of the simplest machines there is at all. How were they transporting goods when the men with wheels found them 400 years ago? Two sticks dragging behind a dog, otherwise known as a travoy, or carrying it on their back. Is that an efficient means of transportation? But you can read in the Bible that Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac had carts, chariots, let me tell you, chariots thousands of years ago because God blessed them with those means. The point, listen, I want to make a point. We have blessings like no other group of men have ever been blessed. If you do not take advantage of those opportunities, you will be judged for it. And we need to thank God for all that we have. They had no written language, no number system, never built a city, no civilization at all purely nomads living from day to day, and if the buffalo herd didn't come by, they died. Economic blessings follow God's Word. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. We looked at this briefly last Sunday, but I want to go over it again. The basis for Bible economics is so important because we must give God the first thanks for what we have and for what the opportunities we have. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 has wisdom personified as a woman. She is crying out in verse 7, For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth, wisdom cries, are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and right to them that find knowledge. The Bible we read earlier this evening, it's plain to us that have understanding. This is the Word of God speaking about itself, the words of wisdom. Verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. Why do you enjoy witty inventions? Because you are so witty? Or because your ancestors had the words of wisdom? And where the words of wisdom are, where God's word is, witty inventions follow. You can look south, you see the land of Mexico. Farther south, you see the continent of South America. Now, they don't have the words of wisdom. They have the same text that your New American Standard Bible came from, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Do you want to talk about economic prosperity? Take a look. Take a, you can go to Acapulco if you want. You better stay in your hotel if you want anything to eat or drink or any comfort at all. You leave your hotel and you'll be deprived of all the pleasures you have just north of the border. Why? Why can a line call a border between two nations 
have that much effect because they don't have the words of wisdom, pure and simple. That's looking south. Let's look north. How many of you have been to the province of Quebec and compared it to the per capita income and economic prosperity of the rest of Canada? Quebec is poverty-stricken compared to the rest of Canada. Why? French Canadians live in Quebec. And the rest of the nation has had the word of God for the last 400 years. Let's look west. You go west thousands of miles across the Pacific to the Philippine Islands. The Philippine Islands have natural resources. They have a lot of water, don't they? 7,000 islands or so in that archipelago. Poverty. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church has chained those people with a false text of Scripture. Go east. Look at the nations of Europe. Italy, Spain, France. The most underdeveloped and the highest level of poverty among the nations of Europe. Why? They don't have the Word of God. They have what the Roman Catholics dream to be the Word of God. You follow the words of wisdom and you find prosperity where the words of wisdom have gone. The, the basis for Bible economics is to understand that we have been given a great deal. First of all, you should love this. Why do you think I exalt this book? This book is our salvation when we obey it and keep it and magnify it the way God has said we ought to. Second, you get on your knees and thank God for every witty invention you use in your house and pray God that it not be taken away from you. They're on their way out. Are there not nations in this world, as I've mentioned to you just last Sunday morning, who are catching up with us economically as a judgment of God for our neglect of His Word? And for the last 100 years in which we've made concerted efforts to come up with a new translation every year to replace God's infallible Word. Look at verses 18 through 21 of this same chapter. We saw witty inventions. Don't ever forget that verse. When someone gets you in a corner and you can't remember everything I've taught you about defending your King James Version, you just say, but the fruit proves it's the Word of God. And you run to Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 12 and you hang there because those new translations have no fruit at all. And the manuscripts that they come from have no fruit at all. And you hang with the fruit of God's Word. Look at verse 18. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. Why was this nation founded? Because there were men who wanted to be able to read their Bibles and obey their Bibles based on what they read. Did those men love the Word of God as verse 21 describes? Yes, they did. What followed? Their treasures were filled with substance. Do you see that? This morning we read from Psalm 33 and verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We have been blessed. But see, there's this problem. When blessing comes, so does greater responsibility. To whom much is given... To whom much is given, much shall be required. I'm going to put pressure on you. I'm not going to make you feel comfortable as we go through this series on economics. You're not going to like me maybe at times. I'm going to lay some responsibilities out for you that are, that are tough. Much has been given to you. Shouldn't we require something of ourselves in thanksgiving for what we have? Look at Ecclesiastes 7.14. Here's another principle of God's dealings economically. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 14. Do you know what I was raised to believe? I was raised by fundamentalist parents who taught me that America was great because we befriended the Jews. They went over there to Genesis chapter 15 and found where God had said, to Abraham that those that bless you I'll bless and those that curse you I'll curse. And I was taught that because we took Jewish refugees we had a great nation. Who are the true Jews? In effect, they were right, although they didn't know how to interpret the verse. Bottom line, they were right. Who are the true Jews in Scripture? 
the saints of God. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28 and 29, those that are circumcised in the heart are the true Jews. And where those people have been blessed and allowed to use their Bibles and worship God, they have been blessed. Look at Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider... God also hath set the one over against the other. Why? Why has God given prosperity and adversity? To the end that man should find nothing after him. God has so ordained things in this world that when you get done with studying economics or studying any other subject, all you can find is God. He doesn't want you to find anything else. Now, here's one lesson for financial success. Learn the lesson before he has to bring adversity your way. Grant him the point before he has to teach it to you. Grant him the point before he has to teach it to you. If you will get on your knees and thank God for the prosperity we have, that it is by his hand, and that if adversity comes, it is because we deserve it, aren't you granting the point up front? If you're granting the point up front, he doesn't need to teach you the same way he needs to teach someone who's rebelling or ignoring the point. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's why I'm emphasizing the blessings that we have and we ought to pay attention to them. You want to hear the words of wisdom? Grant the point up front on your knees that God is behind prosperity and behind adversity. Then let him grant you the prosperity so you can be joyful since you already know the lesson that he's behind everything and that all you can find is him. Tell him that. Tell God all you can find in the affairs of nations is God himself. Look at chapter 11 of the same book, Ecclesiastes 11. Let me read a couple of verses that deal the death blow to fatalism and those that are known as the absoluters. Ecclesiastes 11, verses 5 and 6. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand. Now, that's a long work day. You're working in the morning and you're working at night. For thou knowest not whether shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. <clears throat> a fatalist would say, well, I'm not sure of the way the Spirit works, but I know the Spirit works, and so I'm going to let the Spirit work. Spirit work! Now, that's what they say. None of them practice it. You can't be a practicing fatalist. It's impossible. You'd die in about ten days from lack of food and water. But the Bible says to go ahead, sow in the morning, don't withhold your hand in the evening, don't give up and say, well, God's got to do it. Work hard all day long from morning to evening and trust the Lord to the rest. The whole Bible, the whole Bible is a system of apparent contradictions that must be reasoned out by a wise man. God makes rich and God makes poor. Promotion comes from the Lord. Yet the Bible says the hand of the diligent shall be made fat. Well, how do you reconcile the two? I'll tell you how. You get up early and you work hard and you work hard till evening and you trust the results to the Lord. You do what he's required of you and trust him for the rest. The basis of Bible economics. Let's move on to the objectives. What should a child of God, what should the families in this church expect of themselves financially? First of all, and I want to get this point out of the way, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. I want to get it out of the way because it's a point that gives me grief to mention in certain respects. I can well understand the Apostle Paul's position on it. Galatians 6 and verse 6. Here's the first reason why you're to be successful financially. You know why? To give to your pastor. Galatians 6, 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Now, who are you? You are those that are taught in the word. Who am I? I'm him that teacheth. You're to be successful financially so that you can communicate unto me in all good things. If I didn't mention it, I'd be partial in the law of God. 
Now, I want to get that point over with. Any of you who know anything about my background know that I didn't come down here for money. I hope you know that. If the Lord will just give me enough to get by and to meet the same financial obligations that I'm laying out for the rest of you, I'm content. I'm not here for money. Did you know I've been accused of that? Brother Red Baker, why'd you tell me that? He told me that there's a poor woman here in Greenville who said that I'm here for money. When I was 27 years of age, I was programmed to make six figures for Michigan National Bank of Detroit. In the last two months before I left to come down here to be your pastor, an executive recruiting firm tried to recruit me for First Union in Charlotte, North Carolina for a total compensation package of 250000 a year. You can call them and ask them if you don't believe that. You say you're boasting, I'm boasting no more than Paul did. And let me tell you how much I love being your pastor. When I left the business district of Detroit, Michigan, for the last time, I told God that I was sorry I wasn't President of the United States to have been able to give up that office to be the pastor of this church. And I still mean every word of that. You people have taken fine care of me. All of my needs have been met. I'm happy. I, I love being here and being your pastor. I agonize before I preach a sermon where I've got to mention a verse like Galatians 6.6 6, because I'm afraid that someone will think that I am here trying to pad my purse by preaching on Bible economics. I'm not here to pad my purse at all. I'm here to be your pastor, and let me tell you, I'm happier here than when I was in Detroit, Michigan. But I have to get that out of the way. Now let's move on to something better. But it is a point in the Word of God. You are to be successful financially to communicate to your minister. You get what you pay for. If you don't pay enough to, give, to put your minister full-time in the ministry where he can study the Word of God the way he ought to for you, you're depriving yourself. You need to have enough to be able to communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Number two, financial objective. Look at Proverbs 13 and verse 22. Proverbs 13, 22. There's no one in this congregation that knows much about my past at the bank. Very few things. My wife doesn't know everything. And I don't talk about it very much, but there are points that I will tell you just to help you understand me a little bit better. I'm not here to try to get more out of Galatians 6.6. 6. Here is a duty that is often overlooked and underemphasized. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 22. A good man, now all of you need to be good men, a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. What does a good man do? He leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren. Now that takes a little bit, doesn't it? A good man leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren. How many of you, if you went under this world right now, have enough laid up either in assets or in insurance to provide for your grandchildren. Please, God, don't take me now. Is that what you're saying? Give me some more time. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. You say, well, that's just the Old Testament. Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12 and 14. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. God has called His saints to lay up for the children. See, Paul taught that in the New Testament. He took what Solomon said and applied it in the New Testament. A good man will leave an inheritance to his children's children. The parents ought to lay up for the children, not the other way around. Now, every child of God is responsible to provide for his family. 1 Timothy 5.8 A man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. 
But did you know that was the only point that was ever emphasized to me? You know, I grew up in a Baptist church that should have taught me the whole counsel of God. But they were always emphasizing the responsibility that children have to set aside savings to take care of their parents when their parents were old and in need. Isn't that what is usually emphasized to the Lord's people? Now, the Bible does say in 1 Timothy 5.8, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel. But parents wouldn't need support if parents practiced Bible economics because parents would be giving to their children and their children's children. Now, I happen to like the way God has ordained things. If my granddaddy had given me an inheritance and my father had one waiting for me, I'd be all set, wouldn't I? Wouldn't that help give a boost to what I should be setting aside for my children and grandchildren? Do you know what the saints of the Lord would look like after a few generations? Fat and happy. And that's scriptural. Fat and happy are both scriptural words describing what God expects for his children. If we did it God's way. I was always emphasized that I needed to be bound to my parents and I remember to save money and keep an extra bedroom so that I could keep my parents when they get old and are unable to support themselves. That's the opposite of the way God has arranged things. He's told you to discipline your spending so that when you're old, you have enough to support yourself and you have some to get your son and your son's son going. That, doesn't, that means more than $500 in a savings account at Greenville National Bank. Burdens are getting larger, aren't they? You need to give to your pastor. Now you need to have an inheritance for your grandchildren. I'm not making this up. This is the Word of God. If you're spending all your money on things for you, you failed and you're not a good man. Pure and simple. Third, you need to lay aside savings so as to protect yourself against adversity. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. I believe they need a new department in social services in our government. And they're going to need one thing to help. That is an ant farm. They need an ant farm in Washington, D.C. for our social services department to learn some wisdom. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. God never spoke nicely about a lazy person. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer or ruler. I mean, there's no one standing there with a bullwhip getting you to do this, getting the ants to do this. They do it naturally. Without a guide, no one tells them how, no overseer beating them to make them do it. But they go ahead and do this. Verse 8. They provide her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. And then look at chapter 30. Chapter 30 on the very same subject. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 25. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. When the going's good, the ants are busy, and they're storing up food for the winter when they can't be busy outside. Now, when was the last time you laid down on a sidewalk and you found an ant that had crawled up to a piece, a grain of sand, pulled its hat down over its eyes, rested its head back against that grain of sand, crossed its hands behind its head, crossed its feet, and relaxed? When you, when you were a child, and hopefully we do this once a month, you can learn this way. You want to be a wise man? Get down on the sidewalk once in a while. And watch the ants. Have you ever seen one stop? If God ever reduced us in size, so that we, in size so that we could get down on that sidewalk with them, they'd bowl us over, wouldn't they? They're scurrying everywhere. Why? Because they know they've got a few months of summer to get their sowing done, their reaping done, and get it into the silos before winter comes. And they live off it then. And the Bible says that if you want to be wise, you need to get out in your yard, like I've said before, and stick your nose down between the blades of grass and learn wisdom about how to manage your financial affairs. Why? Because the going can get tough. Businesses can fail. Cars can conk out. You can lose jobs. And did you know that those are very insignificant little things? Having a car go out. Having the water heater go out. The dryer breaks down. 
Do you know what happens in some households when those things happen? All hell breaks loose. They're in fear, paranoia, panic, frustration, depression. Why? The dryer went out. They didn't have money to pay for a new one or to have it repaired. God wants you to have money set aside against difficult times. He's going to bring difficult times to see if you've got it set aside. He wants you to find nothing after Him. They're going to come. Why aren't we as wise as ants? We spend every paycheck before the end of the week is there. Like I said this morning, there's more month left at the end of the money instead of money left at the end of the month. The third thing you need to keep money set aside for is against difficult times so that you can provide for yourself. Small financial setbacks set most families into hysteria today because they are not prepared for it. If you've got money in the bank and the dryer goes out, it's not going to phase you. That's why Solomon could say money answereth to all things in Ecclesiastes 10.19. I mean, if you've got money, you are going to have a more peaceful life. You say you're speaking like a carnal preacher. No, I'm speaking like Solomon told me to speak. If you have more money, your life is going to be more peaceful. It's that simple. And how do you get more money? We shall get to that. Some of the rules the Bible sets forth. Three things. Give to your pastor, an inheritance for your grandchildren, and have money, an emergency fund set aside to cover you through any difficult times. When you lose a job, you ought to be able to smile as you walk out the door knowing that you can live happily, contentedly, at the same standard of living for a good while while you look for another job. If they ask you to do something on that job to compromise your Christian stand, you don't have to go home and grieve before God of what you're going to do if you leave. You can thumb your nose at them, and I mean that kindly, and walk out the door because you know that you've set aside and you don't have to bow to men because you've mismanaged your financial affairs. I told you this morning that the Mormons have one year set aside in liquid savings for every family. How many of you could exist for one year at your present standard of living if your income was to dry up? Just ask yourself, how many of you could live at your present standard of living if your income dried up? Please stand. It'd be tough, wouldn't it? Isn't it a shame that anti-Christian cult like the Mormons are better at their finances than we are? See, the ants do that. We should do that. I mean, life is peaceful. Life is peaceful when you know you don't have to get on your knees and grovel before your boss, that you can obey God and you can walk out if they require something of you, or that if they do lay you off or fire you for some reason, you can walk out of there knowing that you're comfortably set you can take your time. You don't have to be a beggar and go down the street looking for a fast food restaurant to keep some check coming in that month. Follow what I'm saying? God expects that from each of us. Good men are going to have money to give to those in need. First Thessalonians 4 said that we would have, we would lack nothing. Ephesians 4:28, Paul said, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather, but rather let him labor with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Remember a few weeks ago I told you about a brother in the Detroit church who has Lou Gehrig's disease? That brother needed a, an electric wheelchair. Remember? Insurance wouldn't cover that. That was a convenience, not a necessity. The Detroit church took a special offering for him and raised what? 14000 in one offering for a poor brother who needed an electric wheelchair because of an act of God in his life. I mean, that brother didn't have Lou Gehrig's disease because he hung around with harlots. Now, if someone comes up with syphilis in here, we're not going to be asking for donations for a wheelchair. You, that's an act of God. That's true need. 14000 How much would you have been able to contribute? And I don't mean asking for a cash advance on your visa card. How much? We need to be able to do that. God will bring circumstances our way to see if we're able to take care of one another just that way. There's four things. Number five, you better have some money set aside to avoid church judgment and be disciplined and excluded from the congregation. 
you say, well, now you're sounding like a dictator. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 3. This is heavy weight material that we are covering. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. When I first became your pastor, I preached to you a number of sermons on church judgment. Here are some verses we read from Second Thessalonians 3. Let's read them again. Verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. There's a verse. If a brother walks disorderly and doesn't follow Paul's tradition, we're not to keep company with him. We're to withdraw from that individual. Look at verse 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Tough language, isn't it? There is supposed to be strict judgment in the Lord's church. And if a person doesn't follow Paul's tradition and obey the commandments of Paul, the church is to withdraw from that individual and have no fellowship with him around the Lord's table. What's the primary sin that Paul has under consideration when he says that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? Anyone want to wager? Fornication? No. Idolatry? No. Extortion? No. Blasphemy? No. Heresy? No. You know what it is? Not learning how to work with your own hands and having enough money set aside to keep Paul's tradition. You say, can you prove that? Let's read the context. Look at verse 7. 4. Connecting itself with the judgment of verse 6. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Well, what was your orderly behavior, Paul? Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power. Paul could have demanded wages of that church. But to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. Here's the disorderliness that deserves church judgment. Working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. First Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 raised by Paul as the basis for church judgment. The context of that judgment is not adultery, idolatry or heresy. It's mismanagement of your financial affairs where you're eating someone else's bread and not working hard enough and studying to learn how to do that quietly to take care of yourself. Now, that's hard. You say, I, don't, I didn't think that God put that much importance upon financial matters. Are you reading loud and clear what Paul said? He wrote about financial concerns to the church at Thessalonica because they needed it. They were a church filled with lazy bums just like the churches of Crete were, evil beasts and slow bellies. There were a few churches in Paul's day where he had to emphasize some more ambition. If after the preaching of this series of sermons you make no effort to improve your financial position and you are in a financial position where you are not following Paul's tradition, you're being disorderly and not keeping Paul's commandments, you have condemned yourself as not being worthy of the name Christian. But now that's easy. All you have to do is hear what I'm teaching and obey it. That's easy. I'm not trying to threaten you too much. Just threaten you enough to get serious about what we're talking about. Do you see Paul's importance? When he talked about exclusion in 2 Thessalonians 3, he wasn't talking about some of these heinous crimes that we think of. I mean, what's so bad about spending a little too much money or not working hard enough? It's terrible in the sight of God. Those are the five reasons you need to have some money laid aside, and it means more than $500 in Greenville National Bank. You need money laid aside to take care of your pastor, the man who teaches you the Word of God. You need money laid aside to leave an inheritance for your children and grandchildren. You need money to set aside against a day of difficulty and adversity. 
the loss of a car, the loss of a job, the loss of a home, whatever it might be. You need money laid aside to give to those that are in need, like poor saints. If you get Lou Gehrig's disease, do you want the rest of the congregation in good shape financially? Yes, I think you do. And then to avoid church judgment, to be pleasing to God. See, that's what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. Sanctification and being holy is studying and learning to do what I'm talking about, Bible economics. Look at Proverbs chapter 24 and let me emphasize the importance of measuring where you're at. Proverbs chapter 24, beginning at verse 30. I went by the field of the slothful, Solomon here speaking in the first person, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Remember riding with your parents long distances on vacation? You'd wonder if you're ever going to get there. Well, when you're traveling someplace, you do eventually get there. You get there surely. The Bible says if you're lazy and you love a little extra sleep, and that is too much extra sleep, you're going to arrive at poverty just as surely as you're on a journey and you're going to arrive at your destination. It's just like an armed man coming in and taking you when you're unarmed. That's how surely you will realize poverty if you love a little extra sleep as opposed to getting up and working. <coughs> but the point I want to make from this passage is that Solomon learned a lesson by considering where a man was. He looked at that man's assets. Now, you don't have vineyards so that I can go buy your vineyards and buy your field and see if your fences are pulled down. If your fences were pulled down and your field was overgrown, I'd know that you'd been lazy because everyone was a farmer back then, practically speaking. How do we measure today? We've got to measure and consider where we are at and if we have measured up to what God is expecting of us. Now, some of you should be wise enough to know whether you have enough or you're on your way toward having an inheritance for your grandchildren or not, I'll not ask you to stand. Most of you should be wise enough to be able to figure that out. But I gave you a rule of thumb last week, and I've given you that rule of thumb before. And I give you that rule of thumb to make it as simple as possible for you to meet up to an easy target. I gave you the rule of thumb that your net assets should be $1,000 times your age. Your net assets should be $1,000 times your age. But you know, most people don't know what their assets are. When was the last time you sat down with your wife and took a piece of paper, drew a line down the middle, you said assets on the left-hand side and liabilities on the right, and you listed all your financial assets? You don't get to count furniture. You don't get to count appliances. And you don't get to count cars. Why? Because you have to have those things. Those aren't true assets in a financial, economic sense. List all your assets, what you have in your pocket, what your wife has in her purse, what you have in a checking account, savings account, hit up in the basement, whatever. Your stocks, your bonds, your real estate, your commodities. You don't have to worry about those things? Okay. You go over to the liability side, your Visa, your MasterCard, your Belks, your Sears, your pennies, your installment loan for your car, your loan to your relatives to keep living. Add up all your assets, add up all your liabilities, and subtract your liabilities from your assets. There's a problem for some of you unless you remember subtracting larger numbers from smaller numbers. You're going to be net debtor. It's, you smile. It is sad, it is sickening, and it stinks and reeks in the sight of God. How many times do you do that with your family? A husband and a wife sit down and carefully look at all their assets and their liabilities to see where they're at. That number should approximately be $1,000 times your age. And that is a easy, lenient target for you to aim for. You say, That's, I'm so far away from that, it'll take me a decade to reach it. Do you know why? 
because you're going to have to pay the price for 20 years of foolishness. It may be hard. And I know some of you may right now be getting upset at me for telling you that. You think about it. If a man that is 70 years of age doesn't have $70,000 in assets to give to his grandchildren, what kind of an inheritance is that? Is 70000 a great big sum of money in our day and age? I mean, how many grandchildren are you planning? I'm going to have a few. How many are you going to have? How many grandchildren are you going to have? 70000 Well, I could give $1,000 each. What's that going to do? I'm talking about an inheritance. The, the younger you are, the more mercy you can have on that rule. Now, it's hard for a 22-year-old to have $22,000 in net assets. Not impossible, but difficult. If he's wise and lives at home and saves from the first time he gets a job when he's 14 years old, he can be getting close toward it. The older you get, the easier that one is. Anyone who's well on in years past the 30s should have net assets of that amount. If you bark against that standard, I'm just giving it to you as a rule of thumb. You know, I can't find that in the Bible. And if inflation keeps going, I'll have to make it $2,000 times each year. It's just a simple rule for you to sit down and once a month think, am I making progress toward that? Or, or for you to analyze as we go through these sermons, where am I today? Do you know how much money, you'll, how much money have you earned in your life so far? Those of you who are 40... You've worked for 20 years, maybe more. What have you averaged in income for those 20 years? Let's say it's 20000 That's $400,000 you've taken in in gross income. What do you have to show for it? 10% would have left you with the 40000 you need. I want to create discomfort. I want you to be very uncomfortable with where you're at unless you can exceed those goals. If you can, strive to double it. Don't be satisfied with less than your best. Your annual income measured at the gross income level should be $1,000 times your age. The older you are, the more difficult it is to meet that measure. But a young person can meet that measure. I mean, they hire college graduates in business, engineering, marketing, and they start anywhere from twenty to 35000 And how old are they? 22 years old. You say, well, I didn't go to college. Well, you better have had a good enough reason not to have gone to have earned the same money that those who did earn. Now, if today they're paying individuals who graduate from college and have never worked a day in their lives, their age times $1,000, then all you need to do is be increasing that salary 4% a year to keep up. Because when you change from 25 to 26, your age is only increasing 4%. I mean, it's easy, isn't it? That's not a hard rule. That's not a tough rule. And as I've told you, the personnel agencies and personnel departments I've been around with, they wouldn't look at a resume if your salary was lower than your age. Chuck it. Why look at it? If the other company didn't think he was worth enough to pay more than his age, why would we? It's just a rule of thumb used by the children of this world. Those that are faithful in much shall be faithful in least. If they haven't been faithful with another man's, why are they going to be faithful with our things? Many Americans, because we live in a land of plenty, and many Christians get in a rut, as long as they're able to pay their bills and stay afloat, you know, the nose is extended with two nostrils above the surface of the water. As long as they're able to stay afloat, they think that everything is fine and okay. That is not what God is looking for. God is looking for you to sit down and assess your situation and to consider your ways as Solomon did right here. And he realized that when he saw that broken down wall, the fence pulled down, the field overgrown, that that man loved sleep too much. You know, I went through all the adult working males in this congregation based on what I know about them. Almost half of you make your age in your income. I commend those of you who are that successful. A quarter of you have your age in assets based on what I know about you. Now, you may have some hidden liabilities. 
they would blow me out of the water. But going through the congregation, that's what I found in considering it. That right there should tell some of you who are balking at the yardstick that I'm using. Half the congregations made it in income. Quarter of the congregations made it in assets, net assets. The rest of you can do it also. And it's not that the rest of you should do it. The rest of you must do it. Financial discipline, in order for you to get ahead to meet those five objectives, is not a recommendation on God's part. It's not a suggestion. He's not asking you. It is a command. In five minutes, let me make my last point this evening, and that is the judgments of Bible economics. All I wanted you to, that point we just covered was the objectives, what you need to achieve, why you need to have money laid aside, and I gave you five reasons. What are some of the judgments of Bible economics? If you are given opportunity and you do not take advantage of that opportunity, God's law and judgment for you is starvation. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4. Proverbs 20 and verse 4. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. It's cold outside. I don't want to go work. I mean, this bed's warm and cozy. I don't want to get out and hit the hardwood floors. They're too cold. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore, here's the law of God. Shall he beg in harvest and have nothing? It's harvest time. You've got four silos filled with grain. The sluggard comes to your door and says, please give me two bushels. What does God say to do to that sluggard? Send him away empty. Even in the time of harvest, when your heart is flowing over with the bounty of God and your silos and barns are bursting out, send him away empty. God has given you opportunity in this nation. Do you appreciate the opportunity we have? If you are not where I suggested you should be, it's because you haven't taken advantage of God's opportunity. It has been here. Those who don't work their, with their own hands, their own business, shall not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 As I pointed out this morning, financial prosperity is not always a blessing. Many times it's a judgment. Why do the evil men in this world have great riches? It's God's judgment upon them to keep them in their ignorance and foolishness. Proverbs 1.32 The prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Remember what God told He would do to Israel in Psalm 68 and Paul quotes it in Romans 11? Because Israel rejected Jesus Christ, they lost the gospel and God blinded them and made their table a snare and a stumbling stone. Now, what table became a snare to the Jews? Their banking tables, Romans 11:19. God, God knew the commercial spirit and love of money of the Jewish nation. And when you see that, when you hear about that, when you read about that in the Bible, that is God's blinding of them. Their table would become their snare, Romans 11:19. Did you know that God judges some men with the inability, inability to enjoy their riches? Have you read about somebody who died and they're a multimillionaire and yet they, you know, took soap home from motels with them? You read about them from time to time. God told us about them. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There's a judgment of God upon some men. He'll give them riches, but He won't give them the ability to eat of the riches. Solomon said, this is vanity. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. This isn't all that unusual. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor. Who gives riches, wealth, and honor? God. So that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. Ever seen people who got money, but they were so anxious about losing that money, they could never spend any of it. I mean, they got the savings concept down so well, that's all they could do. They couldn't ever spend. That is an evil disease. It's a judgment of God, economically speaking. The majority of the time, the rich of this world will not be God's children. Psalm 73. The rich of this world are the wicked, according to that psalm. God judges nations, my last point, with oppressive governments that will take riches. 
We studied that last Sunday morning in Proverbs chapter 28. That when princes increase in a nation, you know, God's told us why we have an overwhelming bureaucracy in America. Proverbs 28. Princes increase when men turn from their fear of God. You turn from fearing God, God will increase your bureaucratic government to take away your economic sustenance as a judgment. See, God uses economics to judge people. When the nation of Israel turned away from God, they didn't want a theocracy. They wanted a monarchy. We want a king. God said, fine. You can have your king, but your king's going to take everything you have. And you can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 8 as Samuel outlined in 12 verses long everything that the king would want to take from their hands. This evening, I've tried to present to you the basis of God's dominion in economics. God has taught men how to sow, how to reap, how to exploit the resources of this world because God has given us richly all things to enjoy. He wants you to be successful. Second of all, I've shown you the objectives that God has set forth for you to have. You are to have sufficient money to pay your minister, pay your grandchildren, pay yourself in times of adversity, pay poor brethren, and save yourselves from church judgment by living dishonestly before this world. See, the world's watching you. Are you slothful in your financial matters? And last of all, the Bible certainly speaks of God using economics to judge nations and individuals. If you don't take advantage of the opportunities God has brought your way, you shall beg in harvest and have nothing. You shall cry unto God and He'll mock when your fear cometh. Proverbs chapter 1. I pray to God that everyone will take heed and that so when your fear cometh and when adversity comes into your life, you have set aside means as, that, w that God has ordained and commanded for you that you can smile at them realizing that God has taken care of you by you simply obeying His instructions. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word to your greater sanctification here in this world.